This is your host, Becky Sanders. Welcome to a virtual view where we discuss healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today, we are talking with Michelle Hager, managing partner of Blue Cirrus Consulting. Welcome, Michelle. We're delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Becky. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to hear your questions and to learn more from you and share any knowledge that I have. Oh, well, thank you. It was wonderful to see you again in person. I guess it was almost yeah. a month ago when we had our third annual UMTRSC conference in person. There was a small window in June and July when things were happening in person. And yes. now it looks like things are going virtual again. I know. I know. I hate to see that, but I'm, I'm still hopeful that we can turn the corner here. But it was great to see you in person. It was a successful conference, I thought. And uh, we were all grateful and, and desperate, really, to see each other in person. And, and that was amazing to do that. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Blue Cirrus. Sure, sure. I started my career in pharmacy. I worked as a pharmacy tech and was one of the first pharmacy techs ever certified. I'll age myself with that. There wasn't certification when I first started working in the hospital and I uh, mixed IVs. I worked on oncology and I worked in all sorts of spaces in pharmacy. And then we started to move into the IT space because we needed to do a system conversion. I was at a hospital in Tallahassee, Florida at the time. And my husband now, who was my boyfriend then, was working in IT. And he said, oh, this is great. You'll be in IT with me and you'll get to share your technology and your clinical experience, etc. So that was great. Then I worked at an EHR vendor, McKesson, and from there I was able to work overseas for a couple of years. And when I returned from overseas, I created my own consulting firm. I'd worked for someone in a consulting firm and I wanted to create my own firm at my husband's encouragement. He suggested that I do this and not try to create this for someone else. And so I wanted to do something that would provide more value to our clients. I felt like we could provide more independence to clients. We could educate them better, really be a partner in the industry. And I felt like that that was kind of missing in the in the consulting niche in some cases. And so started the company. And here we are 11 years later. Last year was our 10th anniversary, but we were not going to celebrate that because who wanted to celebrate in COVID? So we're actually celebrating our 10th anniversary this year, even though it's our 11th anniversary. Yeah, so many parties and celebrations didn't really happen last year. <laughs> no. A lot of people are celebrating again this year. So I have to ask, why Blue Cirrus? Yeah, great question. So people ask me this all the time. If you are a pilot or anything like that, you know the cloud formations and things like that. So we said, you know what? There's always blue skies and good weather when there is a cirrus clouds. And so we said we will take on that approach and we'll do blue cirrus because if you choose blue cirrus as a consulting firm, there'll be good weather ahead. Well, that's that's awesome. I love that. That's Thank a great you. philosophy. I'm definitely a glass half full, silver lining kind of person. So <laughs> I appreciate that. 
Other than the, the question about why blue cirrus, what's the next most often asked question? I get a lot of questions, but people probably ask me the most what's going to happen sort of post-PHE. And I say post-PHE about telehealth. And if I expand that out, it really is a question about, are we going to get paid? What's going to happen? Will the waivers extend, et cetera? But if I broaden that question out, it really becomes a a question related to what's going to happen in the future. And I think a lot of people are thinking about that. What's going to happen in the future? How can I manage telehealth? And how do I manage the changes that are happening in the industry? Absolutely. So what what is your take on COVID and telehealth and what COVID has done to the telehealth industry? Oh, my gosh. So COVID has just absolutely exploded it. Um, there's no question about that. Uh, we all sort of got a massive education in, uh, you know, a week on on telehealth. And I can remember pre-COVID, uh, me having a conversation with Frank Seitz from Thomas Jefferson University and just chatting about telehealth and how this is going to be working longer term. Could we convince people to do this? You know, just the whole conversations that we had pre-COVID, trying to help people understand the value um, of telehealth and digital health in general. And uh, his comment was, people will know what we know in five years. It'll come, it'll get there, you know, we'll be able to get through this in five years' time. Well, we basically compressed five years into a week's time, and everyone has expanded this now and has used this. And I think the thing that happens um, that I get questions about and that people are noting now is we we all made really snap decisions about COVID and, and their telehealth technologies, and they were not always good decisions. You know, you had to react quickly. There's no other choice. I can recall us doing a bunch of free sessions right after COVID started. And we had one hospital that contacted us. It was a small institution, small organization in Arkansas, and they were going to close. They did not know how to manage it, and they didn't know how to put telehealth together, and their clinicians were not on board. And we probably had two or three little 30-minute conversations with them about how to put it together, what compliance issues were out there, how could they get paid. While I was talking to this office manager who was essentially going to be making sure everyone had what they needed, I could hear the clinician in the background saying, I'm not going to do this if I can't get paid. <laughs> and the person that I was speaking to saying, no, I'm talking to them. We can get paid. We can get paid. So it was really real time like that. Everybody was reacting and and trying to figure it out. In these, and I'm proud to say that that hospital did not close. In a week's time or two weeks' time, they called us back and said, we are at 85% of capacity. We cannot thank you enough. We are so appreciative of everything that you did. And we were very proud of that. We had probably dozens of conversations like that. We don't know the outcome of all of them, but dozens that we're, we're just grateful that we we're able to help. And I think now that folks are kind of coming around, turning things around, they're starting to think, okay, I made this quick decision. I need to be able to figure out how telehealth is going to work in my full continuum of care. And I need to create something sustainable. This potentially technology process policy that I put together isn't necessarily going to work for us long term. So that's kind of the questions that I get now post crisis pandemic, right? Now we've already sort of learned how to deal with it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great that they called you back. As a telehealth resource center, you know, I consider myself a virtual librarian, and sometimes you don't know the impact if, if they don't come back and tell you because yeah. you're so busy helping everybody that's calling in or emailing in that you don't often have time to reflect back and follow up with folks. That's right. It can be really difficult. And the TRCs across the country, and certainly your TRC, UMTRC, you're helping organizations that are in urban areas and in rural areas. And everybody's so busy. One of our clients in uh, a rural area just contacted me and told me they have 195 patients that are COVID positive in the hospital. So a third of their capacity is just with COVID patients and their high was at 184 pre-vaccine. So they've exceeded their vaccine numbers now, their their pre-vaccine numbers. So it's disheartening. What I'm hearing from them is they're just demoralized, they're burnt out, and they're just feeling kind of betrayed by the public. You know, it's not that difficult to put a mask on. And I know that I'm not trying to be political. I know this has becomes a political situation, but you know, that's the reality on the ground for healthcare people is um, this feeling of betrayal that they've been kind of fighting the fight at the front lines, you know, and we're not willing to be Rosie the Riveter in the back this time. We're just saying, you know what, someone else needs to do that. And I, I don't know what's going on with that. I don't know why that's the case long you know the psyche someone will a historian will come up with that later on but i did understand when i did some reading that kind of the same types of feelings happened when we had the flu pandemic as well that uh, people had the same types of challenges with vaccines and sort of this hesitancy and concerns about it. So anyway, we're doing everything we can to support our healthcare workers on the front lines um, and, and contacting them. I know that the TRCs are as well. It's a hard job on a daily basis when you see, you know, you want to help people and then you know how busy they are and, and that they sort of know I need to focus on this, but I'm sort of fighting a fight over here. So it's, it's a tough challenge. It's a, it's a balancing act. It is. I do not envy those on the front lines in healthcare. And I, there's so many sidebar conversations we could get into yeah. about the economy and the workforce. And I guess we've been around in, you and I have been in the telehealth world about the same amount of time. We got our grant with HRSA to be a telehealth resource center back in 2011. And I took over as program director here in 2012. And so much has changed in the past 10 years. But one of my biggest hopes is that telehealth can help ease that workforce shortage. Right, right. Well, I think there's a there's no question that that will be the case. It's a capacity planning tool. I think it's a business decision really to do telehealth. And I don't mean from a marketing perspective. I don't want to I want to make sure. I think we saw that pre-pandemic, right? Lots of people were saying, "Well, I got to do telehealth cuz the guy down the road's doing it and I got to do it." Now it's different. Now we're doing it for a business decision. I need to be able to reach more patients. I need to keep them out of the emergency room and I need to increase capacity. I need to increase leakage and all of those things can be done with telehealth. So taking advantage of of that 
technology, of those processes, you know, can definitely improve and help an institution and their bottom line and also work-life balance. I mean, look at how many clinicians now that are not necessarily having to be out on the front lines. Let's say that there's that group, but then there's also the group that might have retired that said, okay, I'll do this in telehealth and I'll do this a few hours a week and we can keep them in the workforce. We don't lose that expertise. These are important things. And I see even more unique uses for telehealth now. I'm seeing, um, you know, med spa companies that are uh, working with us that are using telehealth. So you're going in for your Botox treatment or your sculpt. Well, that, that's a medical procedure. So you need to be cleared for that medical procedure and you need to be able to contact those clinicians if you're having reactions to that and all the reasons why you would do that via telehealth. There's no reason why we couldn't do a video visit to check on that or an ambulance service who has nurses and EMTs and paramedics and physicians on board that are really just waiting. And some of the challenges that we see happening with ambulance services in particular is the emergency rooms are so full. You've got the ambulance is turning up and those patients sitting in the emergency room, well, the paramedics have to do what they call wall time. So they're sitting back or laying on the wall waiting for the emergency room to accept those patients. That's a whole time frame that a clinician is not available to take care of patients and is just simply standing there waiting for acceptance of another patient. And that's not even getting into all the behavioral health challenges and why someone would want to do something different there and, you know, finding beds and all of that. That's just straight, I'm going into the emergency room. And, and there's some challenges there because some of those patients don't need to be transported. And our fee schedule is incentivizing them to transport them unnecessarily. And so we have to kind of think through that. Can we create a community paramedicine program to prevent unnecessary transport and therefore contributing to the clogging of emergency rooms? And there's a push-pull there, right? Because CFOs will sometimes say, don't take my patients out of the emergency room. That's a profitable space. But you have to start to rethink how we're going to take care of those patients. I'm going to take them out of the emergency room because that's going to cost you $2,000 just to have them come through the emergency room doors. But I'm going to convert them into a standard urgent care visit. I'm going to convert them into properly caring for them instead of the trauma room, right? The emergency room, which is what the emergency room is meant for, for trauma to come through. And I'm going to put them in the right path, which is an urgent care. They're going to get quicker care, more effective care, because let's face it, and a, and a board-certified emergency room doc, they're not trained necessarily for sniffles and earaches and whatever is happening at the moment that people might be concerned about. They're trained for patching up, getting them going, start to surgery, survival. So that type of medicine is complete. I think sometimes people think doctors are doctors, but they're really not. They're all different depending on the type of specialty that they do. And so there's a whole relearning that we have to do and think about as we 
spread healthcare in different ways and change the modalities, including telehealth. You mentioned the physician fee schedule and a little bit about that push-pull for reimbursement. And we all know at the end of the day, the physicians aren't going to do what they do if they don't get paid. Right. So I, I know here in our region, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio, all four state Medicaid programs have codified permanently many of the things that happened in the waivers at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, things like allowing the patient to be at home, in some cases, some audio-only services. What are you seeing in southeastern United States? We don't see as much of the moving waivers forward parity and now we're moving things forward in South Carolina on health equity trying to push payers in the health equity space to be able to say this is not equitable if people can't access care then they should be able to there is kind of what I would call a truce in South Carolina that was called a few years back, which was the payers and the clinicians and the big hospitals in our state, which is about three or four of them. They came to the agreement, this truce, that we won't pursue legislation related to parity of payment, but we need you to pay for the services that we're doing. And so there's been this kind of, you know, truce out there, but now things are changing because we see the payers are utilizing telehealth themselves. That's causing a very frictional dynamic with the health systems because now the payer is saying, well, I'm not going to pay for your telehealth because I have telehealth for the members. And so that starts to create an adversarial or competitive situation from a hospital or health system perspective. So in terms of changing legislation, we have seen that go very slowly, unfortunately, but we will see, I think, some more movement in that direction. I don't know how much time you spent looking at the 2022 CMS physician fee schedule, but there's there's some really interesting things in there. Yeah, I didn't read the whole thing, but we just had a meeting from CTEL, the Center for Telehealth Policy and E-Law, which I'm part of the advisory board there. And, you know, some funky things with critical care, you know, some different things that it seems like they made a mistake, which is good because they've public comment period now. So we can we can make some suggestions of changes, let them know they made those mistakes. But I think that there have been some movement forward. You can see they're trying to change some of the providers and allow some of the providers to be able to do telehealth. That's going a little bit more slowly and certainly not quite the direction everybody thought we would be going in. I still hold out some hope because I've been to several congressional updates. In fact, I just went to one last week with HIMSS, the HIMSS conference in Las Vegas, and there was a congressional update there. We had bipartisan uh, congressional aides there that have been on the telehealth work group and they were speaking about what the future would look like. And I specifically asked them questions around geographic site restrictions, for example. So what are we going to be doing something with that? And I also asked about the Ryan Haight registration or opioid registration stuff. When will Congress hold the DEA accountable for not creating this registration? So on the topic of the geographic site restriction, there was bipartisan support for that topic, to remove that 
geographic site restriction to, you know, allow folks to be able to provide that care. And, and also in a lot of cases, particularly they spoke about behavioral health, mental health services, allowing point of service to be the home. So I think, unfortunately, the way the government works, we're probably going to see some real change in December from a federal level, unfortunately. So it'll be right before we see something happening with the PHE expiration. But that's probably when we'll see things change out or, you know, right at the end of the 117th Congress. And then on the point of the Ryan Haight Act that I asked about, they did not seem to be that aware about that. That concerned me because we've talked about that for some time. So I was glad to bring awareness to that, that this is on you to to hold them responsible. You asked them to create this registry and to my knowledge, there's not been the first movement on even how it was supposed to be created. So I, I have some hope related to legislation. South Carolina still not where it needs to be, but we're moving in the right direction. Other southern states, certainly Virginia, has been very forward thinking on the telehealth parity side of things. Also, Georgia has been very forward thinking. I think Florida has had some struggles related to telehealth for a while, but they're trying to work some things out and have had some other legislation moving forward. For the most part, it's a mixed bag. And I think that's why we need that federal guidance, at least to have the framework. And then states can do that independently as they see fit. What do you see in, in your crystal ball? Are you a betting person? Do you think that the, the federal public health emergency that currently is set to sunset in October, do you think it'll get renewed into 2022? I think it'll, well, it's 30, it's 90 days, right, each time. Right. So right. I think it'll definitely be extended through the end of the year. I think everyone thought that it would already be extended through the end of the year. That was already the target. But now with the Delta variant just exploding, I told you that we have a a client that has 195 patients in their hospital, so quite extensive amount. But that being said, I think certainly we'll see the PHE extend through the end of the year. I think it depends on what's happening with Delta. And then also what we see in terms of breakthrough infections. I don't even like to call it infections because it's kind of we almost need a different term. It's not quite infection, but it's certainly breakthrough cases where people that have been vaccinated are coming up positive. So we'll just see what happens there. And if we have another variant, then we'll see what happened in 2022. If I'm betting money, I think we'll probably see something go into 2022, but certainly through the end of this year. So, Michelle, you mentioned one client that they really thought they were going to have to close the hospital. And with Lucerus's assistance, they were able to stay afloat. And they were at 85% capacity right at the beginning of COVID. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about the recent trend where rural hospitals no longer offer OB services. Yeah. I'm curious if you've heard any instances where they've used maternal health providers to be able to keep OB services in a rural hospital. So in my state of South Carolina, we had, I think, three or five hospitals in rural areas close, which meant that not everybody was in a 60-minute window for stroke. So that was one thing. But then also in the rural areas of South Carolina and also some data that I've recently done in Georgia, a high infant mortality 
particularly as you slice it between races and a high maternal mortality. We have an initiative in, internally at Blue Cirrus on behalf of the communities to utilize maternal fetal medicine to catch patients and utilize that for at-risk moms so that they can be home and not have to sit in the hospital the whole time that they've got to be on bed rest or whatever whatever the doctor's orders are. There's been a huge study from Intermountain Healthcare, who we worked with at the very beginning of their telehealth journey. They've done an excellent job in just launching to the stratosphere. And this is a published paper that they've written on infant mortality and utilizing neonatologists in order to raise the level of acuity for patients in those rural organizations so they don't have to just transfer but they can also ensure that the clinicians actually have all the information that they need and the neonatologist there to be able to care for the patient so that at the end of the case, let's say they've saved that baby. They know there's an at-risk baby coming and they've put that all on telehealth. We've got the neonatologist from a city, for example, in, in the case of Intermountain from Salt Lake City, and they're going to a rural area. They're all in on this case they can save the life of those children and they can prevent PTSD in clinicians because at the end of those cases, they're not wondering, did I do everything that I could have? Did I miss something? Did I cause this to happen? They know because they're talking with folks and they're talking with those specialists that are doing it every day and they have the confidence that I tried to do everything that I could. It just didn't work out. And that is all via telehealth. So that is neonatologists, clinicians, and then, of course, monitoring, uh, patient, infant monitoring post-birth that are at-risk babies, just tons and tons of reasons to use telehealth in that case. It makes complete sense to use telehealth. Michelle, I'm glad I asked the question. I didn't know you were such a font of knowledge about uh, <laughs> maternal fetal medicine. Well, I have to say, I've come by it honestly We've done some great work in that space, so I've, I'm passionate about it. But we also have had a lot of births at Blue Cirrus. We've got a lot of grandmas and a lot of mamas that just recently happened. And uh, so we're always really focused on that. And, of course, let's think about it. That's the future. And uh, if, we can, if we can do something to save those moms and save those kids, especially when you see just the disparities there and you can see the data that shows, depending on where you're living and what your uh, race is, that that has a factor, you just, it just screams out to help. So I'm glad I could answer that. Well, this is about the end of our time. I want to thank you for being with us today, Michelle, and exploring the world of telehealth a little bit. I think if you are thinking about doing telehealth or you're thinking of abandoning telehealth, and I'll speak to the rural clinics who worry that there's not going to be an extension of the waivers and they worry that they won't be paid. And so they're changing today. They're just saying, you know what, never mind. I'm so busy. I don't have time for this and let me just abandon this. So speaking to those groups that are thinking about this and, and skeptically considering telehealth at this point, keep in mind that every time we talk about telehealth, at the legislative level, state and federal, 
it is a bipartisan acceptance and positive response. Everybody knows it works. It does what it's supposed to do. It does help in community medicine, improving access, improving quality. And that's what we're seeing. So these are just the, the wheels of legislation moving more slowly than we would like. It's a bit like moving the Queen Mary or whatever to the, you know, it's going to take a little bit, but it's pointing in the right direction. So don't give up. Uh, don't be disheartened. Thank you so much, Michelle, for being with us today. And I'd like to thank our listeners listeners for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Becky Sanders. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below, and we'll be sure to post a link to the Intermountain study about maternal fetal medicine as well. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, I'd like to give a special thanks to Josh Rodriguez and Francis Fitzgerald for scoring our podcast and to our awesome editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Services Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy and the Office for Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Becky Sanders as the program director of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy or position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.